Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. This is your co-host, Mike, here, and before the show starts today, I just wanted to remind you all to go check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash Conquering Columbus. And there, uh, you can give us all your money. No, I'm just kidding, guys. Uh, there you can give us small monthly contributions, whether it's you know a couple dollars, five dollars, and it really helps us out, keeps the podcast up and running, and allows us to create uh, great content for you guys every week. And we really appreciate it. Also want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors over at AWH. They are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. And they've got over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH products. And they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you guys want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Uh, Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well. And uh, we can trust to deliver high-quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the store behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out MaxEffortMuscle.com. All right, let's get this episode rolling. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today we have Pelotonia's Doug Allman. I'm going to kick it over to Mike Minucci. Let him give you guys some background on Doug. Hey, Conquerors. Uh, Doug is a three-time cancer survivor, the former president and CEO of Livestrong, and the current president and CEO of Pelotonia. And uh, he was first diagnosed with cancer at the age of 19 while at Brown University. And uh, after multiple surgeries and treatments, he survived and is now cancer-free. And he went on to found the Allman Cancer Fund and became president of the Lance Armstrong Foundation and then uh, president and CEO when it became Livestrong. In 2014, he left to become president and CEO of Pelotonia, an organization here in Ohio that raises millions every year for cancer research through a three-day bike ride and ongoing efforts throughout the year. In 2015, Pelotonia raised over $100 million for cancer research, and we are very excited to have Doug on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Thanks for having me. How's your day going so far? It's going great. That's it's awesome. going great. Any day that we get to focus on helping people and hopefully changing the world is a good day. Yeah, yeah. Can't argue with that. So... I mean, just stopping at the three-time cancer survivor, you'd be an amazing person for us to talk to right now. I mean, that's, that's a huge testimony and something for people to overcome in life. Um, but then you went on to do, you know, amazing things to this day. So we could pretty much start anywhere. But what I'd like to hear is kind of maybe start with a little background, and then we'll jump into your time at Brown and when cancer first entered your life. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate. I grew up on the East Coast, right between Baltimore and Washington, and um had the privilege of, of just growing up in a typical sort of middle-class family with great parents, great brother, friends, and, um, and uh, was just really fortunate in life and never really had major adversity, um, luckily. Uh, and I was a soccer player and uh, was fortunate enough to, to be accepted at Brown to play soccer. And I had sort of everything in front of me. And as I always say, as a young adult, you – you feel invincible and you feel like you're moving towards independence and you've got everything to look forward to. And 
uh, unfortunately for me, I was then diagnosed with a really rare type of cancer. And, you know, that's hard for anybody of any age. But as a 19-year-old, you don't really have the life experience to know how to handle something like that. And, you know, it was a shock. I was as fit as I'd ever been. I was in the prime of my life. And I was really diagnosed as a result of uh, a fluke. I mean, I didn't have any symptoms. I didn't. So it came as a, as a shock to everybody. Um, and, you know, you, you, you learn a lot really quickly um, through an experience like that. And looking back 20 years, I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I, I doubt I would say that at that point. Um, but having learned so many life's, of life's lessons at such an early age is really a gift. And I, I am thankful for that looking back. So can you take us through the days on when you were diagnosed and what that process was like? You said you didn't have any symptoms and it was kind of a fluke. Yeah, so I was home for the summer and uh, I was in, in Maryland and it was one of those hot August, humid summer days. And my brother, who's three years older, was uh, working in politics at the time. And I was goading him that night at my parents' house. I was like, man, you're out of shape. You got to get moving. You got to get fit. And he sort of goaded me back. He's like, okay, tough guy, let's go for a run. And I had actually already trained that day. Um, and so we went for a three or four mile run, nothing serious. And when we got back to my parents' house, I couldn't stop wheezing. And I just sort of couldn't catch my breath. And I had had uh, asthma as a, as a child, but I had never had an issue in years. And after like two hours, I couldn't stop wheezing. And my parents said, let's go to the emergency room. And I thought, no, I don't need to go to the emergency room, I'm fine. And finally, I relented and we went. And the doctor on call said, you're totally fine. He said, it's an allergic reaction to pollen or something in the air, and you'll be fine in the morning. And literally, we were walking out of the hospital, and he came back and said, you know what? You're here. Let's just do a chest X-ray and take a look. He did the X-ray. He looked at it, and he said, you're fine. And so I went home. I fell asleep and woke up the next morning and felt totally fine. I was coaching soccer at a youth camp, and I went to camp, coached the kids, came home. And that afternoon, um, I always tell this part of the story because it's funny, but I got back, and you know, at that time we had an answering machine, uh, and, and you know, there were no cell phones and that kind of thing. And so there was a flashing red light, and I hit the button, and it was our family physician. And he said, Doug, I was in the hospital today visiting another patient, and they notified me that you were in last night. So I went by and looked at your x-ray, and he said, you need to have a CAT scan immediately. And what he thought at the time was that I had a massive heart condition because all he could see on the x-ray was a shadow behind my heart. And again, x-ray technology 20 years ago was not what it is today. And so he thought I had this heart condition. And so I went and had the CAT scan. My mom and I went, and the only thing I remember from that is when I was sliding out of the CAT scan apparatus, the technician was sitting on the other side of this window and he was pointing to the screen and my mom was standing behind him. And uh, I just realized at that moment that something was wrong and I didn't know what it was. Um, I was so naive and young and I, I, uh, I wasn't really sure what was going on, but, uh, but what that CAT scan revealed was a, a tumor that was growing basically behind my heart, uh, next to my spine and it was attached to my, uh, to my rib cage. So the bottom line is, had I not gone on that run with my brother, had I not gone to the emergency room, had the doctor not ordered the x-ray, like all these things happened. And if any one of them didn't happen, you know, a year or two or three later, it would have been a different story. The cancer may have spread and it may have been more invasive. So I was very lucky to, to have all those things happen and, and, and to find out, to be honest. Yeah, and you know, I think um, at that point, you're 19 years old, you know, you find out you have cancer. So what kind of mindset did you have when you first found out and how did you kind of keep a, a mindset going forward of hey I'm going to fight this I'm going to stay you know, I'm going to keep battling and I'm almost interested here the minute you walked out of that and they told you what you were diagnosed with I mean what was the reaction like from your family too it's almost harder on them than it is on the actual person who's being diagnosed yeah so it was an interesting experience because I had this CAT scan and then basically they came back and they said look you've got this tumor they said it's not causing you any problem you're probably, it's probably benign is what they said. And they knew I was getting ready to go two weeks later to, to start the soccer season. And they said, you know, you can go back, play, and then just come back during winter break and we'll figure out what to do. And for some reason that just didn't sound like a good idea. 
I don't, I think mentally I thought, I don't know if I can just know there's some tumor growing inside and, and just wait. And so I decided instead to have surgery the next week. And even when they did the surgery, they thought, oh, it's probably benign. It's not causing any problems. And so a week after the surgery, uh, they still didn't have the pathology report. And then 10 days and then two weeks. And finally, we got called into the doctor's office. And very matter-of-factly, the surgeon sat down and said, well, it's confirmed. You have what's called chondrosarcoma. And so even after having the surgery, I didn't think it was cancer. So I was not prepared for finding that that diagnosis. And so in that moment, I was sitting with my parents in this hospital in downtown Baltimore, and I mean, it was totally overwhelming and totally shocking. And um, I think there was, I mean, there were a lot of different emotions in the room. I mean, there was sort of disbelief. There was some anger. There was frustration. There were, I mean, my parents were crying. You know, it was just like, and the weird dichotomy is that I was so healthy and fit, and I didn't feel sick. Yes, I just had part of my rib cage removed, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I had cancer. Um, I felt invincible, and so in that moment of finding out, you know, that, that that was when the emotional side really kicked in. And you know, to your question, I think it's very hard on parents um, or anybody, any family member. And I remember my mom saying something to me. She said, you know, as parents, you try to fix things for your kids and you try to like remove barriers or help them figure out how to remove barriers. And she said this was the first time as a parent for her that she felt helpless. She's like, there's nothing I can do. Now, that's an exaggeration. There was a lot she did and she could do, but she couldn't solve the problem uh, the way she could have solved other problems for for my brother and myself. So um, it was a really just something you never expect to deal with, especially at that age. Yeah, I think that's just hearing about it and knowing like cancer is one of those things that you feel like it's so out of your control and you feel like it can happen to anybody. And then when you hear about it, it's like very humbling and you think, man, that could be me. And I think that's what resonates so well with people. And, you know, it's kind of uh, you put yourself in those shoes and you try to think if that was me and just it kind of it rips your stomach out a little bit just hearing a story like that. Yeah. And, you know, again, at that age, there's just so many. I mean, being a young adult is hard enough. Right. So like that's just a big period of maturation and, and a lot going on in your life. And so you introduce something like a cancer diagnosis and it's just it, it can be very stressful. Um, and you also really I realized how naive I was. I mean, I think back I thought back at the time to like high school and I thought I don't ever remember learning anything about cancer. I remember learning about heart disease and HIV AIDS and, you know, um, uh, tobacco and, you know, just things that, you know, were more normal. And yet we lump hundreds of different diseases underneath this umbrella and we call them cancer, but everyone is different. And so, um, I just remember thinking, Oh, I'm so smart and I'm, I'm going to this great school. And, and then I realized like, I didn't know anything like nothing. <laughs> um, so you start learning as much as you can really quickly. So from that experience there, can you take us through kind of the process of um, you know, multiple surgeries, multiple treatments to finally being declared cancer free. Yeah. So, um, six months later I was diagnosed with, with melanoma. Um, and three months after that was diagnosed with a second form of invasive melanoma. And, you know, again, this was all between my 19th and 20th birthdays. Uh, super rare to be diagnosed with one cancer at that stage of life. Incredibly rare to be diagnosed with two or three. And frankly, probably wouldn't have found the second or third if I hadn't had the first. Um, so it was sort of a domino effect and, and, and probably, uh, again, very fortunate to have been diagnosed that early. So it was just a roller coaster year. I mean, just as naive as I was, not knowing anything about chondrosarcoma, when they told me I had melanoma, I thought, what's that? I mean, I had to relearn everything about that. And so... Um, it was just incredibly stressful, and I was very fortunate. I had incredible friends, incredible family. I mean, I had everything you would want, and it was still hard. And that's why I really decided to start an organization because I realized if it was that difficult for somebody that had insurance, had support, had teammates, had great professors and mentors and family members, imagine what it's like for people who don't have uh, uh, a high level of education who don't have financial resources or insurance or, or any number of things. 
imagine how difficult it would be. Um, that was really part of the impetus for, for getting more involved. So what was that process like until you were cured and diagnosed cancer-free? I mean, was it you were cured and then you came back and found out you had cancer again? Is that what the three times went through? Or Yeah, because they were all three different cancers, they were each sort of treated or surgically removed separately. So um, as an example, when, when the chondrosarcoma was, was finished, um, you know, the chances of that ever coming back were 5%. Now they're much lower because so much time has passed. Melanoma, when you've had one melanoma, the chances of having it again are increased. But it's not a recurrence. It's not, I mean, you can have a recurrence. In my situation, it was the chances of you having melanoma again somewhere else on your body is increased. Um, so we knew that was a risk, but not, we didn't expect to have it happen three months later. Um, so it, it, again, it was just lots of, lots of interaction with the medical system. I mean, I was flying back and forth. I always tell the story. Southwest Airlines had just started flying between Baltimore and Providence, Rhode Island. And so I was very lucky. I got to fly back and forth all the time to see doctors and, and go to the hospital. And it allowed me to stay in school, which was a big deal. Uh, because when I was first diagnosed in August, my parents sat me down and they said, look, if you want to stay home this semester, you can. And live at home and that's fine. But I'll never forget, they said you know, all your friends are going back to school. And so nobody's going to be here. And we would love to have you stay here, but it's probably better to go back to school. And who cares what your grades are? Who cares? Like, just be around your teammates and your friends. And that's going to be way more beneficial than just staying at home when you don't know anybody around here. And they were right. And it allowed me to go back. It allowed me to graduate on time. Like, it would have been a much more challenging situation, I think, if I had not done that. Um, so I always tell everybody, my parents deserve you know all the credit for everything so <laughs> they're amazing people absolutely and so from you know that point when did you graduate from brown then so i graduated in 99 so i was diagnosed sort of after between my freshman and sophomore year and then the other two diagnoses were during my sophomore year and then so at what point did you finally you know hey i'm cancer free uh you know i don't have to worry i mean not don't have to worry about it anymore is not the yeah, correct term so but i'm I mean, fortunately for me, it was it was really um, it was really about a year after my initial diagnosis that I felt that way. Um, I mean, I knew there was a risk of it coming back or, or having another diagnosis, but um, it was really that that first year. I was again, all my cancers were caught early, which I was very lucky um, to have happen. So, but for me, because I had multiple cancers, the follow up. Uh, care um, has always been interesting because I have to see multiple types of doctors every year. And for most cancer survivors, the most stressful part of their survivorship is the two weeks before they go back in. Because even if you feel fine, you just always know there's a chance that they'll find something. And so, um, and then if you ask my wife, I mean, she would tell you that she can sense my behavior change even without knowing when the appointment is. She'll say, do you have an appointment coming up? Like she, could, she just knows. And, and even if it's irrational, you know, like it's just part of the psyche. Because especially, I think, for somebody like myself, when you're so fit and so healthy and then you're diagnosed, I mean, I'm an eternal optimist, but it also causes you a little bit to have that sense that something could happen and you just never know. And so I don't want to take anything for granted, that's for sure. Yeah, I can see that definitely helping you appreciate every day, you know, as much as you possibly can. But so you graduate from Brown, and then kind of where does life take you after that? Yeah, so while I was um, while I was in school, actually, before my second and third diagnoses, it's it's is when I decided to start a nonprofit, and I didn't know anything about starting a nonprofit. I didn't know anything about how they would operate or or how to organize it, uh, but I just had a sense that we as a family had an opportunity to do something to help other people. And again, I, I, I'm happy that we did it and I'm happy that we did it from a place of being fairly naive because you just learn as you go. And you, it, we started out with this intention of let's help other young adults with cancer. And doing that on a college campus proved to be really valuable because I had access to professors and supporters and teammates and classmates and just people who wanted to help 
And so I called my parents one night from our dorm room and I said, hey, I want to start an organization to help other young adults. And they, of course, said, great, we'll help. None of us knew what that would mean. Uh, so I did that and then I did it as a volunteer, basically, from, from the dorm room. And then when I graduated, uh, I was fortunate enough to receive a, a fellowship from an organization in New York called the Echoing Green Foundation. And they fund uh, 20 to 25 social entrepreneurs every year. And they give you a stipend for your salary and they give you health insurance. So at that time, those were like the two biggest things. Like if I can get health insurance and a little bit of money to live, then I'll be able to do this full time. And so I did that for a year uh, or two years, actually. Um, and it was during that time that the folks in Austin, Texas, uh, who were involved with uh, the Lance Armstrong Foundation called me and said, hey, would you ever come down and meet with us and learn what we're doing? And uh, so I decided to go down there, didn't know anybody, didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, but learned a lot, and then ultimately, uh, a few months later, decided to to move to Austin and, and work at the foundation. And right before we jump into that part of the story, what were some of the things that your foundation was dedicated to? Yeah, so our focus was really on this young adult population, and it was really on things like providing scholarships to uh, college students who couldn't afford college as a result of their cancer journey. Um, it was connecting college age, and not just college, but young adults with one another, um, because I couldn't find anybody my age initially that, that was willing to connect. And people said, well, people your age don't really get cancer, and that's why there's not many of them, which is not true at all. And as soon as we started the organization, so many people on campus at Brown would come up to me and say, man, my brother had cancer last year, and he's 17 or 27 or 24. Like people, once you do something like that, everybody comes out of the woodwork, and they feel safe sharing their own story. So we had a peer-to-peer network. We had um, lots of education and awareness, lots of prevention information, screening information, uh, college scholarships. Um, and that was initially, now the organization is just doing all sorts of amazing things. They're doing a lot of patient navigation, which um, I so desperately wish I had when I was diagnosed. And that is that the day you're diagnosed now at any number of cancer centers, there's, a, there's an Ullman Cancer Fund navigator who comes to see you on day one. And that person is specifically trained in what the issues of young adults with cancer are. And they help you walk through the whole process and talk you through all the things you're going to experience and, and things that are specific to that age group. Um, so I'm really proud of the work they're doing, and it's been awesome to see uh, how much they've grown uh, after I departed, which was probably a good thing. <laughs> Do you, so are you still involved at all with, with the uh, Ullman Cancer Fund? Or? Yeah, so I'm on the board, um, and they've got a great team of I think nearly 20 people, um, and they've grown astronomically in the last 10 years. Uh, and it's a real testament to their leader, uh, a friend of mine uh, named Brock Yetzo, and the whole team there. And it's been awesome to watch. And sometimes, you know, I think in life we 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 like to think we're super important. And and I will tell you, the ideas that they have implemented and the plans that they've implemented and the things that they are doing today are things that uh, I never would have come up with. And that's really cool to see. It's been been really awesome. So you show up to the Armstrong Foundation. What were some of your beginning roles there, and what did your path through the organization look like? Yeah, so um, you know, Lance had sent me an email back in 1997. And what was and, that like? I yeah, mean, that's got to be cool, <laughs> getting yeah. an email from Lance Armstrong. So um, it was. Um, end I, up in spam? You're like, what is going well, on? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, it was interesting because, again, 1997 was a different era. So, I mean, I think I got email in 1996. So it wasn't like it is today, and it's hard to, to think about. But back in 1997, I mean, it was like writing a letter to somebody, you know, and you didn't respond right away, and you didn't send a one-word answer. And, you know, it wasn't like that, and you didn't have it on a mobile device. So I got this email, but 1997, you know, Lance had not won the Tour de France. So he had had cancer, but he had not been sort of as visible. So I didn't really know much about him other than cyclists with cancer. Uh, and so for two years, we wrote back and forth, never met. And when I say wrote, I mean, it was like having a pen pal. It was like every week or two, you'd write something. It wasn't like, hey, what are you doing tonight? You know, it wasn't like we do now with people. So um, so that was in 97, two, two years of writing back and forth. And then in 2000, I decided to go down and see one of their events. And so when I moved there in 2001, um, they basically had three employees, um, and they were raising money by putting on a bike ride, and they had a golf tournament. 
Those are the two main revenue generating avenues. And then um, they were doing a couple programs. They were doing some programs around um, cancer research and uh, had just dabbled in what we call survivorship. And so my, my job was they hired me to start programs. And so for a young person, it was amazing come down and help people with cancer, figure out how best to help people with cancer. Don't worry about fundraising, don't worry about sort of anything else, just focus on what programs we should start. And um, it was fascinating. I mean, to go through the growth that we went through and the trajectory of the foundation, I mean, we didn't have three employees for long and grew so quickly and, and that obviously paralleled Lance's increased visibility and global platform. And it was just fascinating. I mean, we, we, I look back and I was just in Austin last weekend for the 20th anniversary of the foundation. And it was really interesting to see so many people who I worked with over the years and to talk about the things we were able to do. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, that gets lost given what happened. And, you know, living through that was um, very stressful, very challenging. And yet I learned, and yet I learned a lot about sort of life and 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 I think when we're when we're put in situations that are stressful whether it be personal health situations or whether it be professional situations um, or or any other crisis situation I think that's where we learn the most and I wouldn't wish those things on anyone but again as an optimist I always choose to look at what was the benefit of that like what did I why did I go through that why did I have the opportunity to go through that and um Again, when you're going through it, I don't think you'd say that, but when you have time to reflect, I learned so much um, through that experience that I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade. Yeah, I think uh, I listened to an interview the other day, and it was John Wooden talking to Tony Robbins, and they were talking about how humans are forged through adversity. And you know, I think it's, it's so true, and the people that we've talked to, they've really gained that perspective that everything happens for a reason, and at the end of it, they can kind of look back and see that it made them stronger and why it happened to them, you know, but it can be so tough to take in the moment. I, I can't imagine that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, one of the one of the things I always remember about the, the most stressful time at Livestrong was that one of our younger employees, team members, who was just phenomenal and, and always had a great attitude and, you know, she and others were struggling, right? So there was this idea of like, oh, how does this reflect on my life? You know, how does this crisis uh, situation going on with Lance reflect on the work that any number of people at the foundation did or, or were working on. And she came to see me and we were talking about it and, and somehow it came up that she had had a long conversation with her dad the night before. And at the time, I think this young woman was probably 25 or 26. And I said, oh, what did your dad say? And she said, my dad told me that if I keep my eyes and ears open, I will learn more in the next six months than I could ever learn anywhere else. And it's so true. I mean, because you can't simulate that for somebody. You can't read about it in a book. You can't, it's, it's like cancer. I, I've always been so frustrated that I cannot convey to you what it's like to be diagnosed with cancer. There's no way. I could tell you a thousand times. I could tell you exactly what I went through. I could tell you the emotion. I can tell you all that. If, God forbid, you were diagnosed with cancer, you would immediately call me and say, I get it. But I can't give you that experience. And I'm glad in some ways. Um, and the same, I think, is true for a professional crisis. I mean, you, I can't even begin to describe the level of stress and the level of public scrutiny. And the. it's just, it was overwhelming. Um, and again, when you're in it, you don't really have an appreciation because you're just trying to get through every day. So anyway, last weekend was interesting because it was just fun to reflect on so much of the good work and to see what the foundation's doing now. And, um, you know, that's where the focus needs to be is on the mission of the organization. And during your time there, what was your relationship with Lance like and what was he like to be around and that experience when, you know, I mean, obviously he's had a lot of ups and downs and, and you guys were with there, right there with him. So how did that work? Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't know him very well when I moved there. I mean, obviously we had been emailing back and forth, but it was a, a, a less personal sort of communication. Um, but he and I became very close friends over the years and had the, the opportunity to work on um, so many things together and, and to work very closely on, on lots of big initiatives and projects. And um, one thing about Lance was that he, uh, related to the foundation, was that he always wanted to know what was going on. He always wanted to be involved. 
and not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that he was micromanaging, but he was so in the public eye that he wanted to know everything we were doing. So that's what really facilitated a, a close relationship. Um, and so watching, you know, everything that happened was hard. It was challenging, um, again, personally and professionally. And, um, you know, I wouldn't wish that situation on anyone. Um, and I, you know, it was just hard for, for a lot of us at the foundation to, that, that had gotten to know him so well and to see how everything transpired and, and what had happened was, um, it was challenging. From a positive light, I mean, he's, regardless of anything that's been put in the limelight over the last couple of years and come out and things like that, I mean, he's achieved amazing things. Were there anything about him and his personality that stuck out and kind of really resonated with you and helped shape you to what you are today? You know, he, um, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from, from Lance. And, um, you know, one of the things I always say is, like, I saw – Sorry. One of the things I always say is like I saw a side of Lance during, you know, 14 years that most people never saw, which is I saw the work he put into the foundation. And sometimes when I see things written or I see things said now about him, they're primarily talking about the cycling side and the sports side and the, the cheating and the doping and the bullying and all that stuff. And And I didn't see that because that didn't cross into like the foundation side so one of the things I learned um, from him is we used to travel a lot together and all over the world and different events and meetings and things and one of the things that I learned from him was to never um, sacrifice your own well-being and what that meant was exercise every day never like over schedule so you can't stay well so when we would travel there was always a focus on like staying well and I think that's so important for anybody. I mean, in leadership or otherwise, like if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people. You can't lead. You can't be effective. You can't be. And even today, like on days when I don't, I mean, I worked out this morning, but on days that I don't work out in the morning, I feel sluggish. I'm not as, you know, I'm not as uh, with it. I'm not as effective. Like I just feel differently. And I know that'll sound really simple, but that's one thing that he always prioritized. We'd be in New York. He'd say, hey, we're running in Central Park tomorrow morning can't go to the five meetings without running first can't exercise like that was just part of his his daily routine and I think once you get out of collegiate sports for a lot of people it's easy to like when you don't have that team or you don't have that motivation or goal it's easy to get sucked into the stress of everyday life and so um, he always pushed us you know to do more and to sort of strive for 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 other things which I think was great absolutely so um can you take us through the process of, uh, you know, getting towards the end of Live Strong? You left, I think, in 2014, right? You came to Pelotonia. So can you take us through kind of the end of your time at Live Strong and then why you chose to come work with Pelotonia? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I joined um, Live Strong so many years ago, I, I mean, I had no understanding of how long I would stay there. And in fact, I had a good friend who called me early on and said, like, what are you going to be there, three years, four years? I thought, sure. I mean, this day and age, that's normal. And so when it got to about eight or nine years, 10 years maybe, it was sort of like it hit me like, hey, I'm, I'm now in my early 30s. Like, I need to start thinking about what I'm going to do long term. And then all of a sudden, the sort of crisis was looming and the clouds were building and th there was definitely no uh, potential or no thought of leaving during that. I mean, it just, it just wouldn't have crossed my mind. And so once all of that settled down and once we were able to get the organization sort of focused on the mission and, and sort of uh, moving forward, then it was sort of time to think about what was next. And one of the things that happened is, you know, the, the team here in Ohio contacted me and said, would you ever be interested? And, you know, initially the reaction was, no, I'm good. I, I love what I'm doing. I love Austin. And, um, and that was all true. But the more I learned about Pelotonia, the more I saw a huge opportunity. And I had always admired Pelotonia from afar. And I had come up uh, to the first ride, actually. And 
I'd sort of seen what great success they'd had and, and seen the, the level of engagement from the community here was just overwhelming. And so as soon as I started to learn more about that, it, it became a great opportunity. And so uh, my wife had never been to Ohio, so we came up to visit and I'll never forget we were flying back and she said, that's a pretty great city and it seems like a great place to raise kids. And, it, you know, <clears throat> so we got super excited about the opportunity that Pelotonia has as uh, a social change agent. And we, you know, obviously are seen as a bike ride, but the reality is it's a social movement of people who came together around a cause that they care about. The bike just happens to be the platform. And for many of our riders, a majority of our riders, they didn't ride a bike before. They signed up for Pelotonia, they got on an old 20-year-old bike, or they bought a new bike, and then they started riding. So that's just an interesting twist. It's not people who were all hardcore cyclists. We have some of those as well. But it's, it's, it's a diverse community of people who said, hey, I care about this cause, and I can participate in a way that's meaningful, and I can be a part of something bigger than myself. And I think that's the biggest uh I think that's what we're all searching for in life is to be a part of something that has a huge impact that none of us could do on our own. And Peloton is a shining example of that. Yeah. I think that's something that Mike and I talk a lot about together is that, you know, after leaving collegiate athletics, you kind of lose that part of an organization or part of something that, you know, it's bigger than you. And then you search for it in your life. And it is cool when somebody finds it in an organization like Pelotonia or, you know, wherever else they may find it. But what I'm interested in is in terms of a leadership position and, when you first came to Columbus, what was the team like? Um, what were your initiatives when you walked in? And what was your mental state of mind in terms of this is what I'm going to do? And um, how did you kind of think about taking things over? Yeah, I mean, again, I was really fortunate because I was coming into a situation where they had had tremendous success. I mean, this was not a turnaround situation. And that's always, always exciting. Um, my predecessor, uh, Tom Lennox, and Kelly Griesmer and the team here had just they'd worked magic. I mean, they'd created this great brand that resonated with so many people and was so visible in the community. They'd raised a ton of money. They'd engaged people in a unique way. Like, things were great. And so, to me, the first thing was to really assess the infrastructure and figure out, do we have the infrastructure necessary to grow? Or are we maxed out in terms of things like IT platforms and you know just, just internal stuff? Because we all see the potential, but if you don't have the building blocks, you can't realize that potential. Um, the team was small. The team was six people. Um, and, you know, I came from an organization that had over 100 people. So, you know, it was trying to figure out, okay, what are the roles that we need to add? What, what expertise do we not have internally that we need to add to the team? So that was a big thing. And then really helping facilitate a process for the team to think about what's possible. Um, because, you know, the, the, the ride itself is an amazing experience for people who participate, and, and that's what keeps them coming back. Um, and we want to grow that significantly, and we also want to add other opportunities for people to be involved. So if for some reason you can't be in Columbus, Ohio the first weekend in August, or if for some reason you can't physically be on a bike, or if for some, you know, whatever it might be, there's got to be something for you. And whether that's buying merchandise, whether that's volunteering, whether that's donating, whether that's using a new technology platform to participate virtually, you know, all of that is possible if we have the infrastructure and resources to pursue it. And, and so that's what we've spent a lot of time on over the next two years. And I, I've never been as excited as I am today about the next few months and the next few years, because given the generosity of our partners that fund the operation, <clears throat> and individuals who've stepped up recently, th the sky's the limit. So from an IA perspective, what are some of the initiatives that you guys are working on here and how are they different from what you were doing at Livestrong in terms of the money that you guys are raising and where that's going? Yeah, so the biggest difference is that at Livestrong, the programs were focused on helping cancer survivors today. And here we're focused on funding research and, and translating that research into therapy and treatment that will, that will save people's lives. And the beauty of Pelotonia in such a short period of time is we actually already have great examples of treatments that we funded that are now approved by the FDA that people all around the world are getting every day. 
I mean, literally, there are drugs available to patients today that would not have been available. And the most moving thing that's happened in my two years here um, was this past August when we had a woman stand up at our opening ceremony in front of 12 or 14,000 people and basically say, I've had cancer for 16 years and I was about to give up. And my doctor said, no, we're going to try one more thing. And that thing is a pill called a brutinib. And she takes one every day and she lives in Virginia and she raised $25,000. And she basically said to these thousands of people, if you hadn't decided to ride, I would not be standing here today. And there are tens of thousands of people just like her that we'll never meet and we'll never know their names. But Susan Davenport shared her story and it's like, that's all the motivation we need, you know, to, to, to do more, to fund more young scientists, to fund more clinical trials. And it's, I mean, again, it's so rare that any of us get the chance to be a part of something that saves somebody's life, much less tens of thousands of lives. And so when I was standing there just listening to her talk on that stage and looking out and people's tears coming down their face, like, it's not a bike ride. Like, this is, this is so much bigger than an athletic event. It's, it's become something really special. And, um, you know, our challenge is how do you foster and grow that? Yeah, that's an incredible story. You know, I'm kind of fired up. I'm going to go start slapping <laughs> Pelotonia uh, magnets on everybody's cars nice, right now. Nice, But, um, I, you know, it's stories like that that kind of make you realize how big of a, you know, how big of a deal Pelotonia is and how, you know, how important it is and how big it could be. So kind of what, you know, compared to when you first entered, what are your goals now moving forward? Yeah, so I think the goal is to really expand the base of people that can be involved. Right? So we're working on a new technology app that would allow anyone in the world who's riding a bike, whether you're spinning indoors, whether you're riding to the park with your kids, whether you're commuting to work, whatever you're doing on a bike, you could be part of Peloton. You could be tracking that and you could be generating money by your, by your cycling. Um, so that's exciting because it, it broadens the bottom of the pyramid of engagement. The ride is always the top of the pyramid. We just got to expand the bottom so more people want to come to the ride and, and participate. Um, we're expanding our merchandise significantly with partners. Um, we feel like that's a way that you can wear your support. You know, you can wear, as we say internally, wear your arrow um, and, and support Pelotonia in that way. Um, and then we want to always enhance the ride. I mean, we want this to be the best experience you've ever had. And again, it's, it's, it's not a cycling event. It's an experience. We have people that say to me all the time, I actually don't ride very much, but I will never miss Pelotonia because it's the storytelling and it's the community and, and the corporate engagement. And um, it just brings so many things that so many people are passionate about together. And I think Columbus is like this unbelievable place where corporations collaborate where the, the academic university community works with the business community, works with the philanthropic community. And again, Pelotonia is at the center of that. It, it brings all of these groups together um, in a way that I don't think most cities can pull off. Um, we've seen other cities try to replicate Pelotonia with varying levels of success. And some have been very successful, some have not. But I think the intangible ingredient that you don't see from afar is this collaborative spirit that Columbus has where companies will co-sponsor, co-invest, you know, partner in ways that um, you just don't see that often. And I think, you know, Les Wexner and, and others in town really uh, deserve a lot of credit for that because they foster this belief that, hey, what's good for one of us is good for the community. And so let's collaborate to make this a great place to live and a great place to, to, to raise families. And I haven't spent a lot of time in other cities, but it's funny because we were with Jenny Bauer last or Jenny Britton Bauer last week and talking with her and um, the amount of pride that and amount of, I don't know, compassion is the right word, but the, the, amount, the amount of people that like that brand and resonate with that brand and the amount of people that resonate with Pelotonia, it's like, to me, I kind of see them like, Columbus really takes to certain things, and those are two really big items that really bring Columbus to my mind. So totally. I think it's amazing that you guys have been able to create such a strong branding and people have developed such a strong relationship with it. I think you're right. I, one of the things I've been amazed at here is that there's this dual sort of um, feeling that I've gotten, which is there's this genuine 
pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. And it's to our benefit, and, and we are so fortunate that, that that exists. At the same time, there's this beautiful uh, sort of Midwest humility where people don't necessarily care about who gets credit. And, you know, ultimately, Pelotonia is owned by the community. And we talk about this internally. It's not ours. We're just conduits. Our job is to create a platform for people to do amazing things, whether that be writing and accomplishing something physically that they never thought possible, or whether that be volunteering or contributing or you know whatever it might be. But Pelotonia belongs to the community. And, and that sense of pride is why people put the magnets on their car or the yard signs in their yard or you know whatever it might be. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's really special and not every city or not every community has that. So can we talk a little bit about what your relationship is like? You talked a little bit about collaboration in the city um, with the James and other organizations that you guys work with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we again, we are so fortunate that 100% of every dollar we raise goes to cancer research. And that's only possible because of our funding partners who I think had the foresight and vision to say, let's just take that out of the equation. Let's let them be the most transparent organization there can be which is 100% of every dollar is going to the James. And the James is, you know, in my opinion, probably the best cancer hospital in the world. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have moved here because there are a lot of great cancer centers. But what Dr. Caligiuri has built in terms of the teamwork and the culture is something I've never seen before. And again, I've been to, in my last role, I, I traveled the world. I went to almost every major cancer center you can think of. And there are some great ones, um, but I've never seen anything like it. And the fact that this city and this university were able to build the James, which is now the third largest cancer center in North America. Um, again, if you ask somebody walking down the street in New York City, where's the third largest cancer center in North America? I can assure you they would not say Columbus, Ohio. They'd say Dallas, L.A., Chicago, you know, San Francisco, whatever it would be. Columbus, it, again, they're so proud of the James. And the team that he's assembled, partially with, with funding from Pelotonia, is second to none. Um, so it's so it makes it so easy for us to encourage people to get involved because the story is so pure. It's like every dollar you raise is going right up the street there to those buildings where these young scientists, these senior scientists, these teams are working on solutions to a problem that unfortunately is going to impact all of us. And so we're very fortunate to have that partnership and then to have the corporate partners, whether it be L Brands or Huntington or Cardinal or AEP um, nationwide, I mean, they give us the ability to do the work we do without the stress of how are we going to keep the lights on. And that is so rare for a nonprofit. Um, and again, all of these factors is what what excited me about the opportunity was the the opportunity to do something in a different way um, than most organizations. Right. So, and you talked a little bit about it, but um, I know Dr. Calgary is a huge part of it. But what do you think allows the James to excel um, with regards to cancer research? And you know, obviously, Pelotonia has a role in that. Yeah, I mean, they've been a leader for a number of years nationally and internationally. Um, but frankly, the Pelotonia resources that we've been able to generate have allowed them to exponentially uh, uh, move forward. And, you know, a couple of years ago, um, actually, it's about a year ago now, the James uh, went through their latest cycle of review. And it's sort of a long story. I'll make it short. But essentially, every five years, cancer centers have to get reviewed by the National Cancer Institute. And you get this stamp of approval that says you're a comprehensive cancer center. And there are about 45 of them in the, in the U.S. today. And the James has been, been one for 30 years. And it comes with funding from the federal government, millions of dollars. And the application that Dr. Caligiuri has to send in every five years is over 1,000 pages. It was, I think at this time, it was 1,200 pages. He works for a month on it with his team. Everybody submits. And you have to show what type of research you're doing across the spectrum. So preventative research, behavioral research, translational research, clinical trials, everything. And then they send a group of 20 to 30 experts from around the country. It's called peer review. And they come and spend two days. And you've got to show them everything you're doing. And then they give you a numeric score. 
and the score is like golf. So the higher, uh, uh, the worse off you are. And the scores go from anywhere from 10 being the best score you can get to, you know, 60, 70, 80. And 15, 16 years ago, 20 years ago, the James was in the 40s, which basically means like you're on probation and you better be careful because the next round you're going to be under a lot of scrutiny. Um, six years ago, the James got a 12, which is like unheard of. It's in the exceptional range. And last year, the James got a 10, which is the perfect score. It's only happened one other time, and it's never happened at a university-based cancer hospital. And so, I mean, it's remarkable, like the perfect score, which means their research enterprise is so is second to none. And so, again, that only helps us. And for Pelotonia to grow, we want the James brand to grow as well. Both of our brands have to grow um, because the better known they are, the easier it'll be for us to grow, and the better known we are, easier it is for them to grow. And so it's a great partnership, and I'm a huge fan of Dr. Caljuri, and um, he's a big reason why I'm here. Are there any projects there in particular right now that you're aware of that um, really stick out to you or really unique? I think one of the things that we've been able to do is we've been able to fund a network across the state of Ohio. So we funded something called the Colon Cancer Prevention Initiative, and this is a, a program that is offered in 52 hospitals across the state, a lot of community hospitals where they wouldn't otherwise have access to um, a specific genetic test for people with colon cancer. And uh, essentially, there's a gene that was discovered at the James called the Lynch gene. And if you have the Lynch gene or Lynch syndrome, your odds of having colon cancer are significantly higher. Um, and if you have colon cancer and you have the Lynch gene, the way we would treat that colon cancer is different. So a couple years ago, we funded a $4 million grant to screen everyone at these 52 hospitals who's diagnosed to see if they have it. So that does a number of things. One, it allows us to treat them differently if they do have it and more successfully. Two, it allows us to then test their families. And there's a 50% chance that their, their, their offspring would have the gene. And if you find out that your kid has that gene, your son or daughter will never get colon cancer because they would get a colonoscopy starting at age 20 instead of 40 or 50. So any colon polyp would be found early and they will never get cancer. So in three short years, they screened several thousand people across the state and they discovered multiple cancers and multiple family lines that had this. And so those people will essentially be prevented from ever having colon cancer, which is remarkable. So now we're about to fund the next projects using that statewide network. And we, we're going to announce it on uh, November 9th, but um, we're going to start using this network for other research projects that can have a much bigger impact. And now most other states are going to start testing everybody with colon cancer for, for Lynch syndrome. So as a matter of fact, the Vice President Biden is working on this Cancer Moonshot Initiative, and his report that he delivered to the president on Monday afternoon said one of the recommendations was everybody in the country with colon cancer should be tested for this gene. They wouldn't have said that had we not funded this project. And so that's just one example of like a real tangible thing that's not in the lab, but actually being delivered to patients across the state. Um, so we're, we're excited about the next project that, that utilizes this network as well. You know, eventually, I, we want to jump into what our listener base can do to help you guys out. But before that, something that's kind of bouncing off my head is I was listening to, you know, over the last couple of weeks, a couple of different podcasts where people were talking about how they went through cancer several times, overcame it. One guy had his lungs removed. And just listening to these were just overwhelming. And, and I almost felt like I needed a break from hearing the stories. You're around it on a daily basis. And something like finding the Lynch gene, um, I'm sure, is really helpful in being able to continue to do this, but does it ever become overwhelming for you and your team or is it ever um, just yeah, a hard yeah. thing? I mean, doing the work that we do is um, incredibly emotional and it, it unfortunately, it, there's no finish line that we can see. And so on any given day, um, in fact, tonight I got an email just before we started from a friend in New York who has a colleague whose mom was just diagnosed with lung cancer, lives in Virginia, doesn't know where to go, what can we do to help? I mean, that happens multiple times a day, and the, the good news is, is that we can help. We can help direct them, and we can get them the right, the right care. Um, and that's always something that we're really honored to do. Um, 
but the flip side is we hear stories of pain and stories of loss every day. Um, in fact, a very close friend of mine um, lost his wife uh, uh, within the last two months, and she was 41 years old. They were known each other since middle school, two kids, and she was diagnosed in May with colon cancer. And, in fact, I'm leaning on it, but he is the editor of a magazine, a, a music industry culture magazine called Fader, and this came in the mail yesterday, and unbeknownst to him, his colleagues put Love You, Stacy" on the edge of the, of the magazine because that was his wife. And, I mean, I'm 39 years old, and I have two kids, and when I think about Andy and Stacy and their family and their kids and the pain and the loss, it's like, on the one hand, it's motivation because we can do something about this. On the other hand, it makes you stop and reflect on how fortunate we are for every day. And whether you've had cancer or not, life is too fragile to ever take for granted how fortunate and blessed we are. And um, so it, it can be very overwhelming and, and it can lead to burnout and it can lead to exhaustion. And so back to my earlier point, like you gotta take care of yourself and, and not in a selfish way, but just if you need time, if you need to take a break, if you need to get away from it, like we gotta make sure we take care of our team members and, and our community members. Right. And yeah, and we're kind of getting towards the end here, but I wanted to, you know, check in and, you know, how anybody out there listening, all our, we call them conquerors, yeah. but anyone out there listening, how can they help? How can they get involved with Pelotonia? I mean, I think the best way for, for anybody, for conquerors to get involved is really just to, to share our brand and our message and let people know that there's an opportunity to get involved, whether it's, again, volunteering, whether it's, I mean, there's so many opportunities, whether it's a bake sale or a, buying a t-shirt or just participating in some way. Um, we always talk about 100% of the money going to research. If we can get 100% of people to do something for this this cause, um, no matter how small or how large, it'll all add up. And so, um, you know, we're grateful for everybody who, who participates in their own meaningful way and for everybody that's different. So if you want to ride, come ride because it'll be the best experience you've ever had, um, we hope. And... Uh, and, and if you want to volunteer, volunteer. And if you want to buy a shirt, buy a shirt. If you want to just tell somebody about the James that needs help, tell them. If you want to call us with somebody in your family that has cancer that needs help, call us. We will help. I mean, we, we want to foster this community of people who believe that we can have a big impact. So anything they do uh, uh, in their own personal way is, is special. Yeah, we'll have all your links up in our show notes. So hopefully people can find those pretty easy and uh, find a way to contribute. But one of the final questions we like to wrap up with is a phrase that we kind of represent our brand in our podcast is live uncomfortably. And we think a lot of people that are, are successful or have been able to succeed in different aspects of life have had to live uncomfortably for extended periods of time at some point. Um, obviously, it seems like from your story, your whole life has been a series of uncomfortable events. But um, what does the phrase really mean to you and how does it kind of resonate with you when you hear something like that? I think it's brilliant, actually. You know, I, as I look back on my 39 years, I've had the most amazing life I could ever ask for. And there have been times when I've been totally uncomfortable. And those are the times when I've learned the most, I've grown the most, and I've achieved the most. And whether that's cancer, whether that's crisis at work, whether that's climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or doing a 100-mile run in the Himalayas, like when we put ourselves in situations or are forced to be in situations that are uncomfortable, um, I think we understand the meaning of life. And I always say that we should set goals that seem unachievable because then you really push yourself to, to see what, what life is about. And I think too many people set their sights too shallow. And, I mean, humans are, are capable of so much, and I think when you're uncomfortable, you're forced to realize that. And so I think it's a great, it's a great theme, it's a great tagline, and uh, it's a good reminder for all of us. Absolutely. Well, Doug, I think that's a great place to end. Is there anything else you want to say to the people of Columbus? Any last comments or remarks? Just thank you, because Pelotonia would not be successful if it were not in Columbus, Ohio. And Columbus means the world to us, and uh, we hope that we can continue to make Columbus proud as we grow and impact the lives of more people. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. We hope you guys enjoyed talking to Doug. 
and we really appreciate him having him on the show. If you guys like that episode, rate us on iTunes, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're all over the social media. Uh, we really appreciate you guys listening, and any likes, shares, ratings really helps out a lot. I uh, want to give one more big shout-out to our sponsors over at AWH. They are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies, and they've got over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH products. And they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. To find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors. That's the end of the episode. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.